I'm C.J. Layton, coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show is regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002, 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ, and a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company, the number one lane maintenance company in the world. Well, Phantom fans, as promised, we are continuing to pay tribute to former great professionals and close friends by looking more closely at their careers and, more importantly, what kind of a people that they were. And to help us with these memories is PBA and USBC Hall of Famer Larry Lickstein. And you've heard his impressive bio many times before, but just keep in mind that Larry has a fabulous memory and he's a legend in our sport. So Larry, without further ado, and without taking up any time of the show, who are we going to be talking about this week, Pards? Well, we're going to be talking about uh, another gentleman that we just lost uh, about six weeks ago who was uh, a legend and loved across the bowling world. And was a legend for 55 years, uh, the wonderful, the great Anthony Tita Simez. Yeah, he was uh, an awesome guy. And I know you were close to him for, for at least half of those years, probably three-fourths of them years. But he was truly a sweet man and everybody loved, right? Well, he was an amazing man because, you know, first, let me, let me tell you a wonderful story. Uh, we became friends naturally. Uh, in the early 70s, I believe uh, I met him uh, at the Schenectady Press Tournament in 1968. I believe our Hartford team crossed with Tita, Gordy Coletti, Gene Vitrone, uh, Al Fuscarino, and maybe Ralph Engen. I don't know, but it was a strong team that came out of New Jersey, and we knew who he was. We had heard about him, and the reason we knew was uh, he had bowled 867 uh, in New Jersey, and at that time, the 867 was the second highest series to Allie Brandt's 886. Allie Brandt bowling two, uh, 297, 289, 300 in 1938 in Lockport, New York. So at that time, it was a record. Tita bowled 867, and I'm 99% sure he was second behind Allie. There was a fellow from Chicago named Paul Marion that had 865 twice five years apart, which back then was a ridiculous record. Uh, 865s, 860s were unheard of. I think a fellow from Wisconsin, from Sheboygan or uh, Manitowoc, 
named Carl Wilsing bowled 876 right after Cheetah, 69 or 70. But of course, you know, nobody broke Alley's record till Jeremy Sonnenfeld did it in 97. But anyways, when Cheetah did it, Eb and I came out with a $10,000 bonus that if you beat his 867, you would get $10,000. And lo and behold, right after that 867, he won the Ebonite Open in Mountainside, New Jersey. And the interesting thing about that is uh, that was his first PBA win. And my first PBA win was the Ebonite Open three years later. And the same gentleman that gave Tita his winning trophy, uh, the CEO David Stapleton, gave Tita his check and a trophy. And he gave me a check and a trophy three years later in San Jose. So we would talk about that. You know, we had these things, you know, we were both from the East. And one of the questions I always asked him is, I had asked him it earlier in my life, forgot about it. But in uh, 2000, we were driving from uh, Hammond, Indiana, over to Shippenburg to Salisbury's place for a regional. And I asked him how he got the name Tita. And he told me that when he was a little boy, he had a grandmother who loved him and she couldn't speak English. And his name was Anthony and she couldn't say Anthony. She said, Antita, Antita. And she gave him the, he, the name stuck. He became Tita. That name was so unique that the minute you heard it, you know, you had to see what the guy looked like. You know, it was a name you never heard in your life. It was, yeah. it was unique. Tita was Yugoslavian. When we were taking that ride in the RV from the Hammond, over to Shippenburg. I'll never, it's the last ride I ever took with him. Uh, and they put his feet up on the dash that morning in the RV. And it was, a, you know, a nice uh, early September morning. And, you know, we were on our way about 400 miles from Hammond over to Shippenburg. And we had a lot of time to talk in the RV and talk about our lives. And at that time, Sarajevo was being bombed. And he had told me that he felt he had relatives there that he'd never see again. He knew he had relatives there that he hadn't seen. He got a little watery-eyed. It's the first time I'd seen him like that. It was. It, I, I don't want to say it was wonderful because you can't use that word. But the the feeling that I had was, you know, he was such a good friend. He was telling me things about his life. I don't remember all of them, but I loved him. Everybody loved Tita. Tita was this unique personality that he would always stop for an autograph, always give a grandmother a hug, loved to have a few beers in the bar with Gene Stuss and Weber. And, you know, in the early days of the tour, you know, with the guys that would go in after a squad. And even though he only won three PBA titles, a lot of people don't realize that uh, he was one frame away from a U.S. Open. Uh, he four six to 10th in the first U.S. Open in 71, which was the all-star from 41 to 70. And in 71, they changed the name of the U.S. Open. He bowled Mike Limongello for the title. He needed a spare. And he four-sixed. And he was furious about it the rest of his life. I mean, he was such a competitor that he knew what it was, you know, if you could say you won a major. Then in 78, he bowled Earl for the title in the Tournament of Champions in Akron. So he got the two title matches in U.S. Opens in his life and Tournament of Champions. Uh, that's quite a feat for a three-time titleist, but that, that, that record is very deceiving. Uh, he could have won eight or nine times. Uh, you know, he was a ball away here and there from a win. Great, great competitor, great team player, bowled in the Eastern Classic at Paramus. That was the best league ever, in my opinion, in the, in the Northeast. Uh, at one time, it was like nine PBA champions bowling in the league, including Roth, Petraglia, Limoncello, Semez, Engen, 
Schlegel, uh, I think Sam Zurich pulled it. Uh, this was a monster league. And there was guys in it that Dick Dowdy bowled in it, PBA champion in the 60s. Uh, Bobby McMillan, who made a show in his life. Jimmy Mack bowled in it, who had two seconds. Tim Mack's father. So Tita, Tita bowled for the Faber, Faber Brick Company. The Fabers was a very strong team with Gordy Coletti and Fuscarino and uh, Gene Patron, who a lot of people said was better than Tita, but his wife wouldn't let him bowl. They were very, she was a very religious woman. She didn't want him going out on a tour because uh, she kind of felt the tour would corrupt him. I think <laughs> she was right. <laughs> so let, let me ask you a question that I didn't know. And I, you know, I was close to Tita, but I never did ask him this. Um, when I started in the summer of 71, uh, he didn't even bowl full time. Do you, do you know why he didn't bowl uh, all the events? Yeah, he was he was a steam he was a pipe fitter. He would he would get down in the streets, you know they'd dig a trench, and you know they'd line it with a liner, and he'd get in there. His hands were like leather, huge hands, big hands, big fingers, big thumb, and I got a great story about that hand, uh, which I'll tell you in a little bit. Yeah, but he was a pipe fitter. He made great money, and the reason was those guys had to get out in the street in the wintertime. You know, if a pipe broke, you got to dig a hole with a backhoe and get in there. And so he made great money uh, doing that. He was in a union. He had benefits. I think he liked that kind of work. He liked to get down in there. But, you know, what happened was he became so good that finally uh, Mac Projansky, who at that time sponsored the Tommy Hudson, Don McCune, Johnny Petraglia, Larry Lobb, myself, Ernie, Dick Batista, uh, a few others that I can't quite remember. Oh, Don McCune. He um, he said to Tita, you got to go out and bowl. And so I think Tita came out in 72, and Mac, Mac had a great staff. I mean, he had some horses on that staff. You know, with Johnny, of course, leading the way. He had come off the 71 year with five wins and was runner up to Coco for bowler of the year. So, you know, when you were an Eastern pro and you're on a staff with all these greats, and, you know, he went to the West. He got McCune out of out of Munster, he got Tommy Hudson out of Akron. I don't know if he had Larry Lobb. He might have had Larry Lobb in 74. Mac might have had Larry. And Larry Larry went on a roll in 74 when he got it going. It was unstoppable. Of course, you were there watching that. Yeah. 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 Well, Tina, yeah. Tina just, when I saw him bowl, I just wondered why he wasn't bowling full time because he was a beautiful bowler. I'll tell you what impressed me the most about Tina. Not only his attitude and friendliness, but he had a style that that leg, that knee bend was just so deep. He drug that, it. He drug uh, the knee, and his knee, his knee on his on light pants would get dirty. It would hit the approach. Unbelievable! What leverage? You know, he could... a great story. The Burger King of '78 uh, was a remarkable event. And what happened? Or '77? Excuse me. He had brought me a sortie. It was a legal ball. It was not the soft one. And he said. I want you to drill a thumb at a 45-degree angle, so put a scribe on it, tilt the ball 45 degrees, and I want three-eighths reverse, and I don't care what you do with the spanner to fingers. So I drill it for him early morning practice session. He comes in to bowl the second squad, gets the ball, goes out on the lane, comes back in. He looks at me. He's pissed. He says, it's too long. I can't even get my hands in it. And, you know, I'm weighing balls in the line. He ain't happy. If you screwed up a ball on Tita, you heard about it. So <laughs> I don't say nothing. Now, what am I going to do? We didn't have plug. We didn't have grips. The ball was ruined. You could not plug a ball. We, he didn't use finger grips, regular holes, right? So there's nothing you can do. The ball's too long. It's too long. So 
the day goes on, you know, he ain't happy, you know. So now it goes into Thursday. He's 150 pins out of the cash bowl and B squad. He's not going to cash. He's like 230 pins out of the finals with three games to go. And he runs in the locker room and he says, I'm going to try this thing. And I says, put a short hook in the thumb so you can hang on to it. It'll, it'll lay right on the base of your thumb. So he looks at me, give me the short hook. You know, he's got nothing to lose. I mean, he's going nowhere. He shoots 843 <laughs> to qualify 23rd, makes TV, and wins 38000 Now You've got to understand, we talked about that on the ride. Well, you know, the end of the winter, you know, everybody had to give me 1%. I had one, or 2.5% of, of, of every boulder, and they didn't have to pay me weekly for ball drilling or transport. They, I just took their money earnings, multiplied it times 2.5%, and they would pay me. It was really easy to be a bookkeeper. Just go up there with the money earnings list and say, if you go, there was 1000 bucks, you go here, you only 2500 pay me. So, <laughs> so he won, gave me a nice tip at the tournament of champions. I remember vividly uh, the thrill he had. And when he went on the senior tour, along with Dick Weber, Gene Stuss, uh, John Handigard, and Bob Glass, and Soupy, Jimmy Lewis, George Pappas, Ronnie Winger, uh, they, they were great, great bowlers. And they all hung together. They were very close. And Tita sung. Tita was a fantastic singer, loved to sing Frank Sinatra, and you know, did it my way in New York. You know, uh, he oh, he would always sing my way and uh, people would roar in, in the lounges. We'd have karaoke and he would get up. And when he got up, the place got silent. He had a deep voice, almost a baritone. And I loved him so much, Lenny. Boy, what a terrible week that was for me with Tito on Tuesday and Mark on Friday. It, it took me a month to get over it. I think it put me into a severe depression. I, I, I became miserable. Right after that, I was unhappy. Uh, it started bothering me that I lost uh, all these friends in one year. But, you know, for us alive, you know, we got to talk about them. We can never forget them. You're, you're doing such a wonderful job doing that. That uh, You know, wow. and Bill Hall talking about many legends and Barry, all great friends of mine, Barry and Billy. Boy, you picked the right guys there, Phantom. Well, I'll tell you, as far as uh, I knew that, that's why I delayed this for about a month uh, so that we could both talk about it because – Tito was very, very special to me. Uh, he was a, a force to contend with, especially on the senior tour. And, you know, we were very close out there. And I'd go out and play golf with those guys. And he'd just laugh at me because I was a big lumbering guy. And he could hit it about 100 yards further than me. And I would say, Tito, I says, teach me how to swing. He says, you should have started <laughs> When you're eight years old, he says, it's too late, you know. He couldn't help <laughs> me. <laughs> but he always had a smile. He never complained about the lanes. He was just smooth as silk. What a great man he was. Well, you know, with Weber, you know, and Stuss and Soupy, you know, they had golf every week, you know, and Winger. They, they all love to go out together. They love to eat together. They love to go into the bar together and sign autographs together. And when we would hit the regular stops, you know, year after year, Seminole Lanes and the Ducats at the Villages and uh, uh, Woodside down in Naples. And uh, no matter where they went, uh, they had a very strong following of, of, of older bowlers who, you know, naturally with Dick Weber leading the pack and Tita and Gene, who was fantastic over the age of 50. He'd just come out of nowhere. 
great in Detroit. And he comes out immediately and starts dominating Tita and Don Johnson and Weber and Gary Dickinson and Sutar and Handigar. I go, wait a minute, where'd this guy come from? I, I mean, <laughs> this, was, this was a tough crew right here. These guys could flat play on anything. They love to travel. They love to go out and eat. They they love to mingle with the locals. They one of their I believe one of their absolute motivating factors in their lives was they wanted to mingle with the locals because they knew how lucky they were over the age of 50 to still be able to travel and compete on the senior tour. They were very loyal to the PBA and the PBA staff. These were men that appreciated that tour later in life because, you know, they were too old for the kids' tour, let's face it, you know. And, and But their tour was so competitive, there was no gimmies on that tour. Not with Dickinson and Sutar, Stuss, Tita, Weber, Ernie coming out, you know, Johnny. Oh, my God, what a – Dave Davis. Oh, my God, what a tour that was. Dale yeah. Eagle, Pete Couture. Oh, my God, these guys were fantastic. Yeah, this another guy, an unknown guy, the regular tour – was John Hersena. Remember John? Paul Hersena, Tommy Evans. I mean, the names go on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jimmy Lewis, who never won, was really, really a fantastic bowler. There was several more that that really uh, came on and bowled that tour very well, you know, over the age of 50 that nobody, no, they didn't have great records like Earl or Dick, or Don Johnson. Some of them, you know, interestingly enough, it was so tough to win on that tour. I'll give you a little stat. Don Johnson bowled the senior tour and never won. And Roy Buckley bowled it for years and finally won over the age of 70. Uh, he, no, he lost to Eddie Roberts. Roy Buckley never won. Now, if, when you ask yourself a question, could Don Johnson get blanked on the senior tour? you got to bet the ranch that guy's got to win somewhere. <laughs> but, yeah. but that's how that's how tough it was and uh, you know one thing about Tita that I don't think people realize he was great in his 70s you know um, Andy Apolito had Tita's 80th birthday party at his house in 2014 it's the last time I saw Tita had a surprise birthday party for him Dave and Judy Sutar, Bobby Chamberlain <clears throat> Johnny Petraglia, Tom Baker Walter Ray, myself Dave Bernhardt and I'm sure a few others that I missed all came to Andy Apolito's house at the Villages. I was living in Florida. He was 80 the last time I saw him, his 80th birthday. And he bowled the Villages, got a super senior check. He was like 140 over for 18 games and got a check at the age of 80. And I watched it. And, you know, obviously he didn't have the legs, you know, and he was a little more erect at the line, didn't have the ball speed. But off his hand, it looked just like it did. You know, 30 years earlier, it was pure to the target, beautiful arm swing. He got a senior check, and we were like all freaking out, an 80-year-old man. Now, keep in mind, super seniors were 60 and up, so he, he's he's cashing with guys 20 years younger than him. And obviously, at the age of 80, uh, that's an age that most people are not bowling competitively anymore, let's face it. You know, it's just too many ailments. Too many, you know, been bowling 50 years, your back, your legs, your wrists, yeah. your shoulders, your knees. He's out there chucking away for 18 games. I watched the whole thing. That's the last time I saw him. What a wonderful memory. And, and to realize that was the last time I saw him. 
I like I like it when it's like that where you have a, a you know a wonderful memory about the last time you saw somebody. Exactly. How about one more memory about Tina before we gotta go, Bart? You got one more? I'll tell you what a lot of people probably don't know is he loved to play cards. He loved to play pan. He loved to play in the poker games. Yeah. So he was, I was in a lot of poker games with Tita in the seventies uh, before, you know, he went home in his middle forties and waited till he turned 50. Uh, he, he liked to shoot crap. He was a good crap player. He loved to play the crap table with Gary Mays and the guys. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he, he, you know, he was not an addicted you know, not one of these guys every Sunday betting football and everything else, but he liked to play Pan. For those listeners, Pan was eight decks of cards where they took out the eights, nines, and tens, yeah. and you could only draw on the deck. Len, you played Pan, right? Oh, yeah. I got hooked in there a few times. What I ended up doing was just shuffling the cards for the guys for 25 cents a hand. I made about 30 <laughs> or 40 bucks every night just sitting on the bed shuffling cards. <laughs> well, that was quite a pan game with Goose, Dave Sutar, Ernie, Jay Robinson, Flanagan, Buckley, and a host of other guys, Bobby Jacks, Jimmy Certain, Pappas, yeah. Don Johnson, and they would all sit in them hotel rooms, you know, three, four in the morning, and if they both B squad the next day at noon, they would stay up late and I could I could see Teeter right now plucking cards with Coco and and Buckley and the Goose. It's one hell of a pan game up there in the sky right now, man. Yeah. Uh, Pards, you know, we could talk for hours about Tina and all the old days, and we're going to keep doing it. We're going to talk about all the guys before we're done, so God willing. But Phantom fans, I can't believe how quickly the time flies in these shows, and probably why they say it's the fastest show in all of sports, but hope that you all enjoyed it and that we look forward to talking to all of you again next week. That'd be another interesting guest to talk to. And as promised, as of right now, the Mark Roth show is on by Larry Lickstein. We promised to have a couple more shows about Mark down the road. So let's see, make sure you got some stories lined up because I'll be calling on you. But anyway, in the meantime, I want to thank our sponsors, Brad Edelman from the High Roller, the Christmans from Storm Bowling Products, and our latest sponsor, Dave Kowalski from Auto Value and Bumper to Bumper Auto Park Stores. So let's see, you got a final word to say before we close? Well, Len, like I always want to say to your viewers, thank you so much. You are a treasure. And the fact that you're still motivated, both of us have been off tour many, many years, but we, we still have the love for the sport and our friends that we've lost and our friends that are still with us. And uh, I love what you're doing. I'm sure everybody that listens to your show really appreciates uh, your guests, uh, all your guests, uh, some that didn't bowl the tour, some in different parts of the industry, of course, that I don't even know a lot of your guests, but uh, you do such a great job. I want you to keep going, Hoss. Don't stop this thing. Keep going with it, brother. I want uh, thankful to Kegel that they're keeping me on because they like the old days too, Bard. So we got to go. So for Phantom Radio, this is a Phantom. When you're down and trouble and you need some loving care and nothing well nothing is going right close your eyes and think of me and soon I